This is a Rooster Teeth production. May 24th, 1988. Taka Flight 110, a Boeing 737 with 45 people on board, is nearing the end of its flight from Belize to New Orleans. As the flight descends through 12,000 feet in heavy storms, they lose power in both engines. Unable to restart the engines or reach any airfield, the crew spots a waterway to ditch the stricken plane in. At the last moment, they notice a thin levee next to the water that might be long enough for them to land on, so they sideslip the plane over in an attempt to land. April 4th, 1977. Southern Airways Flight 242, McDonnell Douglas DC-9 with 85 people on board, is making the quick flight from Huntsville, Alabama to Atlanta, Georgia. While descending through 14,000 feet, the crew encounters unexpectedly violent rain and hail, and they lose both of their engines. Unable to make it to any runway, the crew decides to try and land the plane on a rural Georgia highway. What is the fate of all those on board these flights? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Chris and Gus. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. I give you top billing there. Normally I say it's Gus and Chris, and I just realized I never say it's Chris and Gus. It's Chris and Gus, this episode. Whoa. I'm, I don't even know what to do. It's so much responsibility. Don't worry. I'll, I'll hold your hand through it. I'll hold everyone's hand. I'll hold all of our listeners' hands through it as we go on uh, this discovery journey together. <laughs> uh, and uh, as always, want to remind people to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. We post uh, tons of images. This one in particular, you're going to want to see. Uh, I'll post a satellite view of uh, the Taka 110 flight and you can see the water that they were going to ditch in and the uh, little thin levee that they end up deciding to try to land on. Uh, it's really, really fascinating to see. And uh, we're, I'll also post the um, location for the Southern Airways flight. That way you can get an idea for uh, what was going on in these incidents. And I'll post uh, aftermath photos of both these. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to tell you how they end up, but I'll, you'll, you'll see the end result if you go, go check out our social media. And I also want to give a quick plug. If you go to store.roosterteeth.com, you can pick up a Black Box Down shirt and directly support this podcast. We make the podcast for free. And, you know, if you want, you can buy a shirt. No pressure. But uh, no pressure. It, it, would, it would really help us buy some fuel for a plane that we don't have. Yeah. <laughs> and it's soft and comfy. It, it is actually cool. really soft and comfy. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice shirt. So go check it out. So Taka Flight 110. It was a passenger flight from Belize to New Orleans. And it was on May 24th, 1988. Uh, the flight was crewed by Captain Carlos Dardano, who was 29 years old and had 13,410 flight hours, and First Officer Dionisio Lopez, who had more than 12,000 flight hours. So, tons of flight time between the two of them. Mm -hmm. Very experienced uh, crew. Uh, and a little bit of a, a side note fact about Captain Dardano, uh, he only had one eye. Oh. He had lost an eye earlier in his career because of uh, he got caught up in crossfire in El Salvador during a civil war. He was actually flying a plane at the time uh, in an airfield and uh, got caught up in a battle. He had his eye shot out as he was taking off. Uh, still managed to fly his plane and land it uh, at its destination. So is he like escaping the battle? Uh, I don't know the exact details of what was going on. I, I, he may have been uh, escaping the battle at the time. Oh, my God. So, um, you know, he, he's seen some stuff. He knows how to fly under pressure. Yeah, he's, uh, he's no stranger to flying under pressure. And uh, there was also an instructor pilot on board, Captain Arturo Soli, who was monitoring the performance of this plane because it was brand new. It, was, it had just had its first flight in January of that year, and the airline had only picked it up about two weeks prior. So it was, just, it was a very brand new plane. So there were 38 passengers and a total of seven crew members on board. So it was a fairly empty flight. A 737, you know, these are really popular flights. Even if you're not familiar with aviation and airplanes, you've probably flown on a 737. It's a very prolific flight. If you've ever flown... On a Southwest Airlines flight, all Southwest mm -hmm. flies are 737s. 
So, like, if you picture a Southwest plane, that's the kind of plane they were on. Well, yeah. not really, because there's newer versions of the 737 yeah. in general. Uh, in general, just think of that kind of plane. That's more or less the kind of plane that they were on. The flight from Belize was uneventful, uh, as, you know, as most of these incidents start out. Nothing was going yeah. on uh, until the plane started its descent into New Orleans. So, you know, it was descending from its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. And during that descent, uh, there were storms in the area. So they started encountering some severe weather. And, you know, the flight crew tries to, you know, fly around the weather and avoid it. But, you know, they did enter into some heavy storm cells. And uh, when they were descending through about 16,000 feet, they started to encounter some heavy hail. And both engines experienced a simultaneous power loss at this point. And at 12,000 feet, the crew declared an emergency. You know, they tried restarting the engines, but they were unsuccessful. They then started their auxiliary power unit and attempted to restart the engines again. And the engines actually successfully ignited. But Mm -hmm. because of that intense rain and hail, um, they couldn't accelerate up to an idle speed. So they restarted them, but they just couldn't get the the power they needed. They couldn't get going. So did that help them at all still, or did they get some? No, because no. if they can't even reach idle, I mean, that's, they're not really generating any power for the most part. Okay. So the crew realized that the engines were useless, and they shut them down, and they started preparing for an emergency landing. And, you know, at this point, you know, we, like we talked about before, when the plane loses power, you know, it's, still, it's not like it falls like a rock out of the sky. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to do their best to try to glide. And they realize that they're not going to make it to an airport. And, you know, they realize that they're going to have to ditch the plane. Uh, you know, ditching is the term for crashing into the water, basically. Um, but as they're descending, they broke out of the cloud layer and they saw a small levee in front of them uh, off to the side of the canal. And they decided to try to put it down on the levee instead of in the water. What, what is a levee? It's like um, built up earth to try to stop water, like kind of to make an artificial oh. channel. Okay, yeah, yeah, like a, yeah, okay. Good question. I guess people might not know that. Yeah, so it's like uh, a, a strip of earth that's basically trying to create that channel of water that they were seeing. So, you know, that's what they see. And they decided they're going to try to land the plane on the levee instead of in the water. Because like we've talked about before, it's easier to land a plane on a solid surface. You know, which, if you try to put it into the water, like we talked about in the Ethiopian Airlines flight, the engines, you know, grab and scoop up all the water and then the plane mm-hmm. can disintegrate. You know, it can really damage the plane. If you put it down on a hard surface, that doesn't happen as much. You know, the, the, the landing gear can absorb the impact and it's a lot better of a landing. Yeah. So remember how I mentioned that the captain had lost one eye? Uh-huh. He doesn't have depth perception. Oh. And since they're landing on a levee, there's no ILS. They don't have power. You know, that's, they, they have, he has to rely on his sight to try to land the plane. Uh-huh. And, but he's doing it with only one eye. So, you know, he had to be even more careful and cautious about this landing. Yeah. Is there, like, any requirements of sight for pilots? Like, I know in, uh, like, to be an astronaut, you have to have, like, perfect vision or something, right? Is this something you looked up as a kid? Well, yeah, that's what they said. (laughs) Is that not true? It's funny you say that. When I was a kid, I wanted to, like, fly in the Air Force. uh, But I heard at the time that you needed to have 20-20 vision. And, you know, I'm a big nerd who wears glasses. So I knew that I wouldn't be able to, uh, to ever do that. Is it true? So I'm going to read to you the FAA standard for vision here. Okay. So the federal aviation regulations require that a pilot's distant vision be 20-20 or better with or without correction in each eye separately to hold a first or second class medical certificate. Hmm. So should he not have technically been flying because he didn't have both eyes? So um, again, I'm going to read this. This is directly off the FAA website. Okay. And this is specifically talking about uh, one eye. An applicant will be considered monocular when there is only one eye or when the best corrected distant visual acuity in the poor eye is no better than 2200. 
An individual with one eye or effective visual acuity equivalent to a monocular may be considered for medical certification any class through the special issuance section of Part 67. So it seems like there are processes that you can get certified to fly with one eye, but it's just a different process you have to go through. Gotcha. And he was an experienced pilot. He lost his eye flying the plane, still landed it. So Right. So he, sh- he should be good. So they're gliding down and they're going to try to land on this narrow grass levee. And it turns out that this is a NASA facility that they're landing at. It's the NASA Michoud Assembly Facility Industrial Complex. It's where they assemble parts to use in the space shuttle. Oh, uh, It's pure coincidence. It just so happened that they're yeah. landing at a NASA facility. And they come down, they touch down. There's a little concrete berm at the end of the levee that they have to clear. But they actually manage to clear it. And they touch down and successfully land, and no one is hurt. Whoa. None of the 45 people on board suffered anything more than a minor injury. They're perfectly fine. They just had some bumpy, a bumpy landing. They just had a really bumpy landing on a levee. There's no runway there. And so they, they actually managed to, to land the plane. Wow. I want to give a, give a hand to Captain Dardario. Dardano. Captain Dardano. Dardano. So the big question, of course, is, you know, why? Why did a 737 lose both engines in a rainstorm. You know, planes fly through rain all the time. I'm sure if you've flown, you've probably flown through a mm-hmm. rainstorm uh, and you never think the water's going to put it out. In fact, remember, we even talked about on the Qantas Flight 32 episode, mm-hmm. we talked about after the plane landed, they couldn't turn one of the engines off and firefighters shot hoses into it to try to turn it off. And they, the, the hoses from the fire trucks were not strong enough to make the engine go out. Yeah. So what was happening here that made both of these engines go out? Yeah, at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, of course, investigators start looking into this and they realized that the storm was so intense that the amount of rain the engines were going through was the equivalent of 30 inches per hour. So that's a lot of rain. I I doubt, I don't think I've ever been in a storm that rains 30 inches of rain in an hour. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to some of the flooding and stuff. And that's, that's insane. That's a, that's a lot of rain. I guess also because they were sucking in air and it probably increased the, what was already raining, right? No. So that was just the amount of rain they were going through was the equivalent oh. of 30 inches an hour. But the engine flame out was actually caused by the ingestion of hail into the engine core. Oh. Remember, on top of the 30 inches of rain per hour, there's also severe hail that they're going through. And the engine inlet is intended to diffuse airflow into the engine at high speed, slowing the incoming air to align it to the fan blades, and water can act in the same way air does when going into the engines, but hail is more like a bullet, and it can more easily pass between the fan blades and enter directly into the core, bouncing off the blades and other engine parts as it enters. So the engines were designed, and they know they're going to fly through water, they're going to fly through the rain, that's fine, it can deal with it, but the hail had gone in, and just gone in and started breaking stuff up inside the engine. Damn. And the NTSB determined that the aircraft had flown into a level four thunderstorm and the water and hail from the storm caused both engines to flame out, even though the engines met the FAA standards for water ingestion. So interesting you note, know, you, you're gonna, I'm sure you're probably going to ask, or maybe our listeners are thinking, well, what's the FAA standard for water ingestion, right? Mm-hmm. How do they test that? Well, it turns out at the time, the FAA standard it was determined by testing engines running at full power. So when they tried to replicate this incident in their lab, they couldn't get the engines to extinguish and they couldn't figure out why. It's because they were testing the engines at 100%. Oh. Since this plane was coming in to land, its engines were at about 35% power. So, you know, when they redo the testing, throttling the engines back to 35%, then the engine can't keep up with that amount of water that it's ingesting. Yeah, so it can ingest more water when it's running faster. And exactly. When it's lower, it's, it's, and then the hail is the added multiplier or bullet. Exactly. 
And the aircraft did suffer mild hail damage, uh, and the right side engine uh, was damaged from overheating. So the engine manufacturer was CFM International, and actually, they make tons of aircraft engines. You, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you probably have never heard of them. Our listeners have probably never heard of them. But if you've been on a plane, you've probably been on a plane that has a CFM engine on it. So they modified their CFM 56 engine by adding a sensor to force the combustor to continuously ignite under heavy rain or hail conditions so that this kind of thing wouldn't happen again. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah like, obviously, that's, that's what happens, right? There's an incident yeah. in aviation, and you learn, and you modify, and you adapt. Uh, and they also modified the engine nose cone and the spacing of fan blades so that hail would be better deflected away from the engine core. And they also added additional bleed doors to drain more water from the engines. And that's another thing that kind of happened here is there was so much water that it, it also kind of made things worse. It wasn't able to bleed away. So by adding more bleed doors, they're able to drain more water. Yeah. The amount of rain and hail that Taka encountered had been too much for existing bleed doors to deal with, and it just overwhelmed them. So by adding more, just able to drain more water more effectively. So there's a question here. I don't know if you've thought of it yet, Chris. Mm -hmm. How do you get a plane off of a levee? Oh. Right, because they landed the plane. The uh -huh. plane's fine. It's just sitting there now on a, on a mound of dirt. And is it surrounded partly by water? Or? Right. There's a channel of water on either side of it, actually. Huh. Do you have to, like, get a little boat and, like... Push it into it or <laughs> like push, the, get, get some, get the passengers out. Be like, all right, uh, <laughs> is your captain speaking? We've landed. Uh, we need everyone to get out and uh, give us a little push. I should. <laughs> it's like your friend in high school who has a, a crappy car and you got to get out and push it to start it every yeah. now and then. Or like he transitions from plane captain to pirate captain. To <laughs> <laughs> like push it into the water and make it a boat. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is your captain speaking. Yar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wonder if he had an eye patch. Oh, wow. Nice one. That's a good one, Chris. Yeah. Well, the investigators ran into a problem with this, mm -hmm. uh, with this investigation. As they're looking into it, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with this plane. They realize that the plane's sinking into the levee. Oh, no. They only have a little limited amount of time to do this investigation because the plane is starting to sink into this soft earth and they need to deal with it before it gets even more stuck on where it is. Mm -hmm. So initially the plan was to remove the wings and then transport it to a repair facility using a barge. Like you mentioned, they could pull up a boat nearby and put the plane on that barge. But the engineers and the test pilots from Boeing decided to just go ahead and do an engine change there on the levee. Like I said, the right engine was kind of damaged. So they decided to put a new engine onto it right there. And then they towed it to that nearby NASA facility I mentioned. Towed it on a boat? Over the ground. There was a little thin strip of land. And they were okay. able to tow the plane over to that NASA facility. And they gave it the minimum amount of fuel. And they took off from a road there in the NASA facility. Oh. There's a road there called Saturn Boulevard, which luckily used to be an old World War II runway. Huh. So they converted this World War II runway into a road on this NASA facility. So they just towed the plane over to the NASA facility and took off from Saturn Boulevard. And so they landed it at the nearby New Orleans airport where it actually received its full maintenance. And this plane eventually returned to service. And Southwest Airlines acquired this plane in 1995. And it continued to fly until December 2016 when it was Damn. retired and placed into a storage uh, at that point. So, I mean, think about that. It flew for 21 years for Southwest Airlines. So if you flew on Southwest Airlines between 1995 and 2016, you might have flown on this plane, <laughs> which is crazy to think about. Like, uh, I don't think I ever flew on this plane, but I've seen tons of photos of it all over the U.S. Like this exact plane, you see it at airports all over the United States. And uh, you, you, 
you, Chris, or you, our listeners, might have been on this very plane, which is wild to think about. Yeah. So a very happy ending to this story. Uh, very unusual. And that's why I mentioned at the top of the show that I'm going to show satellite photos of where this plane landed and uh, the NASA facility. And you'll be able to see Saturn Boulevard where they were able to take off from. Yeah, I want to see this levee, especially since I didn't know what a levee was. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're learning. Sometimes you learn about planes. Sometimes you learn about levees. Yeah. We've got a different kind of sponsor for you this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say sure, and you never listen to it. Do not let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, there's a two-part episode with stories about uh, visiting North Korea. Uh, there's another episode uh, with an interview with Kobe Bryant. All super interesting stuff. I think uh, you guys would love it. Uh, Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. We're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, I also want to talk about Southern Airways Flight 242. It's a very similar incident. This was a passenger flight from Muscle Shoals, Alabama to Atlanta, Georgia, with a stopover in Huntsville, Alabama. And like I mentioned, it was April 4th, 1977. The flight was crewed by Captain William McKenzie, who was 54 years old and had 19,380 flight hours, and First Officer Lyman Keel Jr., who was 34 years old and had 3,875 flight hours. And uh, this plane was McDonnell Douglas DC-9, and there were 81 passengers and two flight attendants on board. Another relatively light passenger. This one has more people uh, than the other flight. What does the other flight have? Like 45? This one uh, has 85. So, I mean, this is almost double. Yeah. Yeah, but there's more. But yeah, you're right. It's I think nowadays when you fly, you think of, well, not nowadays, but in general, in modern times when you fly, you think of totally full planes with a couple hundred people on them. Yeah. I think if it's below 100, it seems light. Right. Of course. So again, the flight from Muscle Shoals to Huntsville was uneventful. While on the ground in Huntsville, the crews advised that there were some thunderstorms and possibly tornadoes along their route to Atlanta. However, they were not informed that the storm cells had formed a squall line. And a squall line thunderstorm is one of the most dangerous types of storms that a pilot can encounter because they're very strong storms. They can be hundreds of miles long and reach ceilings of up to 55,000 feet. Damn, that's really high. Because cruising altitude is like 40,000 generally, right? So Yeah, 35 to 40,000, you could say. And you can't go around them and you can get trapped in one if you aren't careful. So at about 3.54 p.m. Eastern Time, Flight 242 departs Huntsville. The flight was cleared to fly to the Rome VOR and climb to 17,000 feet. Uh, again, this is a short flight, so they're not going, like you mentioned, they're not going to a super high cruising altitude. I believe their cruising altitude was only 17,000 feet. So uh, this is a, a very short flight. So shortly after takeoff, the crew encountered some light rain and saw on their onboard radar showed heavy precipitation ahead of them. Uh, air traffic control also informed them of precipitation ahead and said it would be a little bit heavier than what they were currently flying through. Four minutes later at 3.58 p.m., the Memphis Center Air Traffic Control contacted Flight 242 and warned them of a SIGMET in their area. 
I think we've mentioned SIGMETs before, but just in case we haven't, uh, a SIGMET stands for Significant Meteorological Information, and it warns them of weather that is significant to the safety of the aircraft. So they're being warned. Memphis is like, hey, be careful. There is some really bad weather in front of you. I'm sure they gave some details, but SIGMET's just like a broad term for bad weather. Correct. And, and there may have been more additional information specific to this, but a SIGMET is just in general a warning. So at 3.59 p.m., Flight 242 contacted the Atlanta Air Traffic Control and informed them they were climbing through 11,000 feet. And at this time, the Atlanta Center was having a conversation with a TWA flight about its deviations and how to get uh, around the thunderstorms between Chattanooga and Rome. In the next couple of minutes, the rain got a little heavier and the crew decided to slow their speed a bit while flying through it. At 4.03 p.m., the Atlanta Center asked the TWA flight if they would recommend anyone else to come through the storms. And they replied that it wasn't too comfortable, but they didn't get into anything they would consider hazardous. Mm. And then just a few moments later, the crew for Flight 242 looked at their radar and they didn't think it would be possible for them to make it through the line of storms in front of them. But they found a hole in the cells and decided to go for it. However, <laughs> that's, this is always, I hate when I say this, however, they were deceived by their radar due to what's known as an attenuation effect. So the way that the radar worked, you know, it detects moisture in the air, right? It detects rain. What was happening here was the radar was being absorbed by the precipitation and it shows up as being less intense. So they thought they saw a gap in the storm, but really that was the worst part of the storm. Oh. It was just a limitation of the radar that they used at the time. Uh, modern radar systems are better and we have satellite data. This kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. Uh, well, this kind of thing shouldn't happen anymore. But because of the way their radar worked, they thought they saw a gap they could fly through when in reality it was the worst part of the storm. So at 4.06 p.m., Atlanta Center cleared Flight 242 to descend to 14,000 feet. Shortly after the crew acknowledged this, the sound of heavy rain and hail was recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. The sound was heard for about a minute, and then the cockpit voice recorder cut out for about 36 seconds. During this time, air traffic control unsuccessfully tried contacting the flight four times. The cockpit voice recorder started working again around 4.08 p.m., and air traffic control contacted Flight 242 again, and the first officer was recorded saying that they got it back. It seems like they lost the radio for a short time and they responded to air traffic control telling them to stand by. Uh, a few seconds later, air traffic control tells them to maintain 15,000 feet if they could understand him. And the crew responded they were trying to and that they had a busted windshield and their left engine cut out. Damn, so they're... Yeah, if I remember right, I think that they were encountering baseball-sized hail at this point. That is massive. Right, I mean... Those are huge pieces of ice uh, that they're flying through. I guess you're more likely to get bigger hail up in the air like that because, like, it melts as it comes down. Correct? Exactly, man, Chris. You you should you should host <laughs> it. I was about I was about to comment on that. Like, if people don't know how hail works, it starts out as tiny droplets of water that freeze and they start falling, and then updrafts push them back up. They collect more water, freeze again, start falling. Uh, updrafts push them back up and this whole process keeps happening over and over and then the ice gets bigger and bigger as it accumulates more water on it and eventually the ice gets too heavy for the updraft and that's when it falls and you get hail but like you mentioned chris as it falls it may melt and gets a little bit smaller so it's rare to see that like even here in austin uh you know where we're based out of we get hail every now and then but mm -hmm. i don't know if i've ever seen anything bigger really than golf ball i feel is like golf big. ball would be huge i've seen quarter maybe like when it's really bad quarter size hail mm -hmm. when it's really bad i've never like maybe i've seen golf ball once in my life yeah uh but to see something the size of a baseball it's unbelievable uh that's you know that will cause serious damage so the crew you know at this point they decide to turn off the autopilot and descend to thirteen thousand feet then at 4.10 p.m., 
the right engine for the plane failed as well. So at this point now, they have no engines. And they're like, at this point, they're in the storm. There's nowhere to go, right? Like they're just... Right. They're getting pummeled by the rain and the hail. Uh, Their windshield is cracked and now they have no engines. Uh, They inform air traffic control and they ask for vectors out of the area. And air traffic control told them to maintain their heading and that the TWA flight was to their left in about 14 miles and they were in clear weather. Uh, They asked if they were supposed to turn left were instructed to contact Dobbins Air Force Base so they could be vectored to land there at Dobbins Air Force Base. The cockpit voice recorder cut out for another couple minutes again. Then at 4.13 p.m., the crew contacted Dobbins asking for vectors and informing them they were at 7,000 feet. They were told to fly heading uh, 100 and to come in straight for runway 11, and they were about 20 miles west of the airport. At 4.15 p.m., the flight was at about 4,600 feet, and the crew began to think that they're not going to make it to Dobbins. They asked if there was any airport between them and Dobbins, but air traffic control told them that Dobbins was the closest airport. But they then came back and said they were about 10 miles south of the Cartersville airport, which was used for general aviation. Mm-hmm. The crew turned to a heading of 360, but soon realized they weren't going to make it there either. What is their altitude right now? 40? 4,600 feet. Okay, so that's pretty low. They're not even a mile in the air at this point. I have a way better grasp of like the altitude and landing after doing the crash simulator videos that we did on Flight Sim. Oh, yeah. People should check that out if they want. It's at roosterteeth.com. Uh, we try to recreate some of these incidents. But yeah, now you know how, you, you. I guess in your mind, you can picture about how much time they have left. I'm picturing like, okay, yeah, they have this much time. They're this high up from the ground. Yeah, yeah it's, it really like... It, it helps me like visualize. <laughs> well, it puts into context the time frame. Like, how much time do you have? Because you know we, we're talking here in an abstract, right? Yeah, you have no idea what that means until you actually try it. Yeah. So if you maybe we'll put a link in the description for that. But if if you give it a watch, it helps support us. It's um kind of like our our Patreon content. Not that we have a Patreon. It's the equivalent of that <laughs> for Rooster Teeth. So. Like I said, they know they're not going to make it to Cartersville either. So they start planning to look for a field or a highway to land in. And at 4.18 p.m., they told air traffic control they were going to put the plane down on a highway. And a few seconds later, the sounds of a crash are recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. Oh, no. The plane landed on a road, but while it was rolling down the road, the plane collided with a gas station. Oh. Yeah. Then it hit some other buildings. And then both pilots and 61 passengers were killed in the crash, as well as a family of seven and two others on the ground. Oh, no. So there were nine people in total on the ground. The family of seven is really tragic. They were in their car. They were just pulling out of a store onto the road. And that's when the plane came by uh, and hit them. Terrible tragedy. So was it just the bat? I mean, because they were trying to land on the road. They were like, we just got to land on the road. But it was just happened to be where a gas station is or like how it's hard to say, you know, without having you, you can look at the flight data recorder and the copy voice recorder. It's hard to to say without having witnessed it firsthand. Yeah. But, you know, the highway, it was it's a small rural Georgia highway. It's not like it's a huge, you know, interstate. Yeah, I've driven through Georgia, rural Georgia. It's those roads are pretty small. I'm imagining it right now. Yeah, yeah there probably was not enough room uh, for the plane to begin with. So the plane broke apart into five sections. The first section became inverted and the captain's and the first officer's chair were found outside the aircraft with both bodies still strapped in. Uh, Many passenger seats were also thrown out of the aircraft with passengers still alive. A fire erupted in the section behind the wings which contributed to many of the deaths. I saw an interview with uh, one of the survivors of this flight. Uh And uh, he said that, you know, when he realized that the plane was going to go down and they were going to crash, he moved seats. He said he felt like he could better survive if he sat in the back of the plane. So he moved to the back of the plane and he grabbed every pillow he could and he built himself a pillow fort. Oh my God, that's 
Smart. Right. And then he thought if there's a fire, he didn't want to get burned. He had a leather jacket. So he covered up as much of his body as he could with a leather jacket to protect himself from fire. That's so smart. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like his quick thinking for himself probably saved his life. You know, he tried to move somewhere and tried to cushion as much as he could around himself, covered himself up with a leather jacket in case of fire. Like he was actively thinking about what he could do to increase his odds of survival. And it worked. He survived uh, this incident. Man. So the NTSB found that the ingestion of intense rain and hail into the engines caused the rotational speed of both engines to decrease below the engine-driven electrical generator operating speeds, which resulted in the loss of electrical power for 36 seconds. So similar cause again. Intense rain and hail slowed the engine down, wasn't able to provide power. Uh, The rotation speed of one or both of the engines increased enough to restore power again, but the high-pressure compensators in the engine began to stall, most likely due to the high amount of water ingested. The compressor stalls produced an overpressure surge that caused the fan blades to break into pieces. The broken blades then damaged the engines further, then the engines overheated and failed, causing an accident that was probably inevitable because uh, the Southern Airways flight crews had not received, nor were they required to receive training or information on emergency landings with all engines inoperative. Mm. So again, similar to the other flight, rain and hail overpowered the engines and uh, and damaged them. I mean... It sounds like they did as best they could, considering, I mean, some people survived, you know, like, what, 20-something people, maybe? Uh, 22. Uh, There were 22 survivors on this flight. I mean, that's that's up for debate. There were some mistakes that the crew made on this flight. When the engines first started having problems, they started surging. What the crew should have done is they should have throttled back to help let the engines clear the surge, and then throttle back up. They didn't reduce their throttle. They kept it too high. So when Mm. the surge was happening, that contributed to the engines damaging themselves. Oh, okay. Also, I didn't get too into the weeds on this, but when they were in the storms, you know, like I said, they were flying east. They turned west briefly to try to get away from the storms and then turned east again when they had no engine power. And this reduced their range. If they had just kept going east, they could have made it further. Yeah, they, by turning, you lose speed and altitude. Right, yeah. and then they also turned away from the airport briefly and then turned back. I mean, there were small things that could have been done differently. But of course, we're not there. You know, in the moment, it's much more difficult to make these decisions. And and who knows what it was like inside the cockpit with all with baseball pelting the window and smashing it. Like, right, I'm sure it was terrifying. I, I forgot to mention, I, I should mention this as well. Um there was a, a family near where this plane crashed, a family in their house. And uh, it was a mother and her children were, were home at the time. And they got a phone call. Um, the woman's husband was at work and he had heard on the radio that there was severe weather in the area. So he had called home and told his wife, hey, you should get the kids inside because um, there's bad storms coming. So, you know, she gathered up the kids. They went inside the house and she said while they were inside the house, you know, trying to get ready for these storms that they heard the crash. And they saw like a bright flash of light outside and they opened up the door to go outside. And it must have been like a horror movie because all of a sudden, you know, there's a crash plane in front of their house and there were survivors kind of shambling around walking towards her house. Oh, my God. And I'm sure they were all injured and, and, and crying out for help. And Right. So I can't imagine what it's like for that woman. It's like, oh, there's a storm coming. Better get the kids inside. And then a plane crash. Can, can you imagine if like we're sitting here right now and then outside your front door, you hear something and you open the door and there's a crashed plane with people you know, who are hurt walking towards your house. Like, help, help me, help me. And you're like, oh my God, yeah. Right, like, Jesus. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and and I, I, I say that just to emphasize how close they were to businesses and houses. Like, like I said, this wasn't a huge highway. There were people right there. 
So the probable cause for this accident was a total and unique loss of thrust from both engines while the aircraft was penetrating an area of severe thunderstorms. The loss of thrust was caused by the ingestion of massive amounts of water and hail, which in combination with thrust lever movement induced severe stalling and major damage to the engine compressors. So that's what I mentioned. They should have um, pulled back on their throttle. Major contributing factors include the failure of the company's dispatching system to provide the flight crew with up-to-date severe weather information pertaining to the aircraft's intended route of flight, the captain's reliance on airborne weather radar for penetration of thunderstorm areas, and limitations in the FAA air traffic control system, which preclude the timely dissemination of real-time hazardous weather information to the flight crew. So a lot of this has to do with distributing the information about the severe weather. Because remember, in this mm-hmm. at this time in 1977, it's not like nowadays, you, you can't just like open up your smartphone and look at weather radar. You know, it's a, things are a lot slower back then. Yeah. So some recommendations were made as a result of this incident. The first one was to expedite the development and implementation of an aviation weather subsystem for both en route and terminal area environments, which is capable of providing a real-time display of precipitation and turbulence. So better weather information. I think at the time that the airlines had to call in to get updated weather from like the weather service. Oh my God. Like, hey, what's the weather? <laughs> yeah, what's the weather like now? Uh, so, I mean, obviously... No one's answering. They must be on the toilet. Like, what? Right. So it's like now, obviously, this information is a lot more readily available. Um, the second recommendation was to establish a standard scale of thunderstorm intensity and promote its widespread use as a common language to describe thunderstorm intensity and indoctrinate pilots and controllers to use this system. So basically, just standardize the way you talk about storms. That way, okay. everyone knows what you're talking about. Like, if you say there's a level four storm, like, you know exactly what that means. There's no, like, yeah, it's kind of bad or it's pretty bad. Like, you remove that subjective nature. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's a process of coding system for storms. Exactly. That means, oh, level four means this wind speed and this much rent. Yeah. Ex- yeah, you know exactly what you're dealing with. The third recommendation is to transmit SIGMETs more frequently on NAVAID so that pilots could receive more timely information about hazardous weather. So just, again, better communication of severe weather and significant meteorological incidents. Uh, And number four, formulate rules and procedures for the timely dissemination by air traffic controllers of all available severe weather information to inbound and outbound flight crews in the area. So again, faster information, faster access to the information so that people know what's going on. That's all communication. I mean, that's just better communication about storms. I mean, it, there wouldn't like it seemed like the first incident was like, hey, we need to modify the way that the plane deals with heavy rain and hail. This was like, hey, we need to modify the way we talk about storms and communicate weather. Right. So, I mean, to your point, you know, Taka knew about the weather they were encountering because they had that information. Yeah. It just so happened that they had another thing going on with their engines, another incident going on with their engines that had to be addressed later. So things were learned from each of these, right? Like mm-hmm. now, and obviously with the Southern Airways, that's a that's a side effect of technology. The technology maybe didn't exist or was cost prohibitive at the time, but the technology gets better. So those things aren't really an issue anymore. So Taka knew that they were flying into bad weather. It just so happened that they had a different problem with their engines yeah. that they encountered. And then that was dealt with as well. You know, the engine manufacturer does things to try to mitigate that so that that does not happen anymore. So I'm curious, uh, you presented these out of chronological order. Is it, what was the specific reason for that? It's funny you ask that. So uh, our producer, Dennis, who does the bulk of the research, uh, big shout out to Dennis, uh, 
initially when he uh, wrote these up, he put them in chronological order. But I just like the Taka incident so much. I think the Taka one is so <laughs> engaging that I wanted to talk about that one first. Okay. I, I was like, I didn't know if it was a reason behind like a, the, the explanation of it or just because, yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like the Taka one is such a good one because everyone survives and it's like this unlikely event. And when I post it on social, you'll see, you know, it's this this weird image of a perfectly intact plane just sitting on a levee, you know? Yeah, yeah. Plus the fact that the captain only had one eye. Like, there's a lot going on he's there. He's a cool... I think that captain is awesome. I don't want to say that. <laughs> like, he, he's like the coolest captain. We should uh, find him, give him the Black Box Down Award for the coolest captain. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just... I, I think Taka's a, a super interesting... And it's, it's an example of when everything goes right. Like, everything went right, and there's a little bit of luck as well. Yeah. They had a really bad hand that they had to deal with, but... You know, they just happened to to find the right place. And who knows, maybe if Southern Airways had encountered a big wide open space, theirs might have turned out better as well. You know, yeah. the, they were coming down fine. They just, it just so happened they couldn't reach a clearing to land in. They did the best they could, but it wasn't big enough for the plane. They didn't have a levy. No levy. All right. Well, uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Also, I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Like I said, we'll be posting images. You can you can see. I mean, there's. <laughs> I'll see if I can find a news report from New Orleans at the time that shows video of the Taka flight just sitting there uh, on the levee. Uh, it'll be interesting to take a look at. And uh, also, I want to remind people uh, once again, if you want a Black Box Down shirt, you can go to store.roosterteeth.com and uh, pick one up. Help support this podcast. And uh, we started making a couple of videos where we try to recreate some of the incidents we've talked about in Microsoft Flight Simulator. Uh, you can go to roosterteeth.com as well and check that out. We have a couple of those episodes up there. We'll have a, a link with all that. Absolutely. We'll put links in the description. But like Chris said, it's a good way to give you context for how long these uh, incidents take, like from different altitudes, like how long until you get down. Specifically, I think you're thinking about the Japan Airlines one we did mm-hmm. where, you know, we cut the power on a 747 at cruising altitude and then circled around uh, gliding for as long as we could. Uh, And that takes a while. You'd be surprised. It's surprising how long it takes to crash. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. But like, it's it's weird because you think of like the scare. I mean, if you watch the video, you'll see. (laughs) Yeah, it'll definitely give you some context. Uh, All right. Well, thanks. uh, Thanks again, everybody. And we'll see you guys again next time. Bye.